Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club, a show where I tell a guest a mystery story and they try to guess the solution. I am your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and normally I would be joined by a guest, but for today, this week, I decided to do something a little different. And instead, I'm going to ask all my listeners at home to try and pay attention as you normally do during this this episode. And at the end of the episode, I am going to ask you to write in an email or a DM on Instagram or whatever you choose and tell me what you think the solution is to the episode. And uh, I will compile the responses I get. And sometime this weekend, I will release a, a short episode with the with the actual solution and include what, what some of your guesses were to the mystery. Probably anyone who writes in, I will I will read out your solution in some form. And and the reason for all of this is I am starting to feel a little bit of burnout uh, over the last couple of weeks. I, I just, you know, life takes over. And so one of the one of the challenges with the podcast is finding guests and coordinating times. And so uh, I cut that part of the process out for this week. So I hope you don't mind. We will be back to a regular episode with at least one guest next week. So stay tuned for that. For this week's episode, I am going back to the classics, my favorite, Agatha Christie. And the story this week is Dead Man's Folly. So I read this book over the summer for the Read Christie 2020 reading challenge, uh, and I had it in audiobook. And then um, last fall, Michael's sister, Nicole, had found a copy in her bedroom and gave it to me. So now I have the physical copy, which is much easier to take notes from. I could have got it from the library, but this was nice. And um, I'm ready. I wanted to tell you guys this story. So this story was written in 19, or was published in 1956, and it is a Hercule Poirot slash Ariadne Oliver story. So we, I've, I've actually told, maybe she appears in like five, five books, and I think I've told four of them now after this one. Maybe, maybe I'm making, making that up a little bit. <laughs> so the story starts out right with Mrs. Oliver calling up Hercule Poirot, and she's basically saying that she needs him right away in Devon, the the county or area where she is, and she instructs him to take a train, leave within the hour, and that a car will be meeting him at the train station. And she hangs up before Hercule Poirot can kind of ask her any questions. She doesn't give any reason for why she needs him or any details on what she's doing there, anything like that. But Hercule Poirot is intrigued, <laughs> he's interested, so he, he does what she has suggested and he takes the train. So he arrives at the, the house that he is going to is called Nass House, and uh, on his way up to the, the house they pass a couple of what looks like hitchhikers and ends up being the house beside Nass House is a hostel for, for young people traveling throughout Europe, mostly. And so they drop them off, uh, the car that's picked up Poirot, and then they get to the house and pretty immediately Mrs. Oliver begins to explain what's going on. And so she says that she had been hired to arrange what she calls a murder hunt for a fet. And so what that, what that means is uh, something that kind of exists today where you sign up to, there's a, there's been like a written 
short like story right of how this murder has happened and it's all it's all fake and then you get to go around the grounds to try and find clues and guess the murder so it's kind of like a clue hunt treasure hunt type thing but at the end you find a body <laughs> basically and the fet that's going on i think is a is a is a money raising scheme by the town mayor or member of parliament or something like that and it's being held at nass house where mrs oliver is and the whole murder hunt has been arranged. So Hercule Poirot isn't needed for that because he would have been pissed if that's why Mrs. Oliver had called him. But she says she has an intuition. She calls it her women's intuition, as she does in a lot of stories, that something is wrong. There's something, there's something off in all of this that she can't put her finger on. And she kind of starts to explain that what it feels like is that people have been pushing her to change parts of her murder hunt, parts of the story. And she thinks that someone has an ulterior motive of why they want these things changed. So it might be something like they suggest that she wanted the body to be found here. They, someone, and it's different people every time, someone suggests, well, why don't you have it in this ridiculous place? And then they end up compromising on a third location. And so she thinks that someone is getting their motive across through other people. But so that's why it's so confusing. She has no idea who's pushing this. So then Mrs. Oliver starts going into the people that are at Nass House, so kind of our, our cast of characters. So first we have Sir George Stubbs, and he owns the place. So this Nass House is his, and he has a wife who is Lady Stubbs, otherwise known as Hattie. That's her, that's her first name. And she's kind of described as like a ditz who loves jewelry and clothes and is very kind of is very kind of focused on herself and maybe a little dumb is how she's described. She's, she can be easily manipulated, comes up a couple of times. And so that's, that's the two, the owner of the house and his wife. Then we have Michael Weaverman and he is the architect who has been hired to redo the tennis pavilion. And he's also fixing the folly. And the folly is kind of like this little, I think I, I kind of feel like it looks like a band pavilion, like or a, uh, I don't know, it's just a little structure where you might go sit out in the garden away from the house. Uh, then we have Miss Brewis, and she is the secretary slash housekeeper. And Mrs. Oliver describes her as very grim, but very also very efficient. Then we have Alec Legg and his wife, Peggy Legg. And they're living in, there's a cottage by the river that's not, I guess it's not technically on the property, but it's very close to. And they're kind of helping out with planning the fet and have come dear, come down here as kind of like a, a vacation, uh, get some fresh air for, for a few months. And then we have Captain Warburton, the uh, Mastertons who are the, um, Mr. Masterton is the like member of parliament that's kind of wanting this vet. But in reality, it's Mrs. Masterton who is pulling all the strings. Like people always describe her. She's like the, the strong woman behind this, this man because maybe she can't be in parliament because it's the 50s, something along those lines. But she's the real one who, who wants all these things to happen and makes them happen. Uh, then finally, we have Mrs. Foliat, and she actually used to own Nass House before the war, her and her husband, but her, her husband had died, her, I think she has a son who had died and one who had been missing in action, so presumed dead in the war, and with three death duties, she was 
unable to keep the house through the war. And so she'd had to sell it, but has been allowed, she's she's um, renting the lodge house that's on the property. So she's still kind of around, around the house. So Mrs. Oliver then explains some of the details of the murder hunt. And I'm not going to get too into into the storyline because it gets kind of confusing when you have the real story and then this secondary story within a story unless you're actually reading the book. But the idea was going to be that the body, it was going to be found in the boathouse on the, because the Nass house is on a river in Devonshire, Devonshire, something like that. And while I'm thinking about it, Nass house was actually based off of Agatha Christie's home, Greenwood, uh, which also was just, you know, big house, lots of acres of land and also on a river. Uh, and you can look up Greenway if you kind of want to get an idea of the sense of what this looked like. That might be a good idea. So so the body's going to be found in the boathouse. And Mrs. Oliver explains to Parra that it was supposed to be Peggy Leg, that, that woman and her husband that are staying at the cottage. But that somehow it, it had got, you know, turned around and it's going to be uh, this, this kind of like girl guide in the area, or I guess teenager, you, yeah, Marlene. So she's a local girl. And so it's one of those things of Mrs. Oliver can't place if there's anything going on, but all the, all these things have changed. And so whichever ones are important, it's kind of hard to tell. So Poirot and Mrs. Oliver start to walk back to the house. They had been going for a walk through the grounds and they pass by the folly, which is what Michael the architect had been hired to fix and he actually is there and he's complaining all about the location. So what had happened was a, a big tree had fallen down and to cover up the scar in the landscape that it had made, they had built this folly, this, this new owner, George Stubbs. And uh, Michael's complaining about how a folly has no place being this far away from the house. Like it's not, it's not in the sun, it's in the trees, yada, yada, yada. I'm not an architect, so I don't understand. <laughs> So then they, they keep on their walk and they pass by Mrs. Foliat who is trimming the hedges and she gives off total vibes of being the hostess, like the owner of the house. So Poirot, when Poirot meets her, he immediately is like, yes, this woman clearly used to live here and almost feels like she still does the way she's leading us into the house and introducing us to people. So that's that's kind of an interesting interesting feeling. So as I was saying, Mrs. Foliat leads them up to the house and Poirot is introduced to the entire household. So all these people, these cast of characters that we've just described. And Lady Stubbs is described as staring at her ring and talking of her clothes, kind of like a valley girl is how I would describe it nowadays. Uh, and the word they use at the time is wanting. But they're, I, they're really, call, like they're calling her dumb. Um, and I don't know not really a nice way of putting that, but that kind of, it's like her character is dumb. That's, that's all she's got about her. So Sir George has a big outburst about trespassers. So this gets back into that there's this youth hostel next door. And it's something about in this, this time period, all these old houses that had used to be owned by rich families are now, no one can afford to keep them up. And so they're getting turned into a youth hostel, a hotel, a a guest house, like or or a school, those kinds of things where the rooms are being divided up, and so Sir George is particularly upset because these youth 
uh, these hostile goers are tried to go over his land to get to the ferry. There's a ferry by the river when they really should be going along the road. And so he'll yell at them whenever he sees them. <laughs> there is also in the room at the time an argument going on about where the tea tent should be for the fet. Uh, it's between kind of the the between Peggy Leg and Captain Warburton. And uh, who knows who wins, but I think everyone kind of gets involved in that, so Poirot's just observing. Uh, then Poirot gets into a discussion with Alec Legg, and it's about, he clearly has a lot of things going on uh, in his mind that are bothering him, and he has all these problems about the human race and how we're, we're stuck and we're not going anywhere, and he thinks that we should be just be getting rid of all the dumb people so that there can be no more, like, no one's you can't reproduce. It's that, I, I feel like we've all heard someone online with that kind of opinion, like a troll. Uh, and Poirot tries to kind of show him how important, like the value of every human life. Uh, and Alec Legg is so disturbed or like upset about just like the world in general that he can't take it in. So he's he's got some weird things going on. <laughs> Then Mrs. Oliver comes back into the room and she takes out Poirot to show him all of the murder hunt stuff. So there's a, a list of suspects and a snapshot of clues. So if you're interested, I will post this to the Instagram page, which is Tuesday Night Mystery Club on Instagram. I will either add this to the post that goes along with the announcement for this episode on Tuesday or somewhere in the stories um, on Tuesday, which is today for the, if you're listening to this on the day it was released. <laughs> so Mrs. Oliver has shown him, shown him what's going on. I, the general idea is that there's an atom scientist and a secret agent disguised as someone else and a Yugoslavian wife. There's a lot going on that's confusing. I'm not going into it. So from there, Miss Brewis shows Poirot up to his room and Miss Brewis thinks that Lady Stubbs thinks that playing dumb suits her, but that really she's a very shrewd woman. And she knows what she is really doing, is what is what Miss Brewis says. And so Poirot finds this interesting because he's hearing this is the first time he's heard this, but there this the idea that there's different stories going on is like, okay, who's who's right? And also why is Miss Brewis, if she's not lying, but why would she say this, you know? Um, from Poirot's window, he watches, he watches Lady Stubbs kind of like sneak off into the bushes. And then very shortly after he sees Michael, the architect, sneak off through the same bushes. And so he's kind of starting to form an opinion about maybe what Miss Brewis is talking about. Maybe not. Uh, and he also possibly sees George and Peggy sneaking off together. That one's a little, a little less clear. But the idea that there is maybe a bunch of extramarital affairs going on. <laughs> so later, later that day, Poirot goes out for a walk as well. And he finds Mrs. Foliat gardening. And he walks with her back to the lodge where she lives. And she had been, she kind of describes to him what it, like the story of what had happened. She had been put in charge of Hattie when she was younger and maybe around 14, 15. And it was because her, her parents had just died. They had owned a plantation on, I think they just call it the islands. Like they don't describe 
where that is, but maybe we're assuming like the Americas somewhere. Um, and that they had recently gone bankrupt. So there's basically no money. And so she kind of describes how Hattie is easily suggestible and is very glad that it worked out with Sir George Stubbs because he's he's a rich man. He's able to take care of Hattie, clearly adores her, and ha kind of Hattie is happy to be spoiled, basically. And so she's happy that she was able to, to make this match. Then Poirot goes for a walk down to the ferry dock where, where those um, hostile guests were trying to get to before. And he talks to the ferryman who's uh, used, to, he kind of sounds like he used to work at Nass House back in the day. He's a pretty, pretty old man, maybe like 80 or 90. And he says that it's sad that Mrs. Foliat's sons had died at war and that her husband had died. And he says that Mrs. Foliat had actually been a Foliat at birth. So she's like some third cousin when when she had married her husband, she'd already been a Foliat. And so he makes some comment to the fact that she's living at the lodge. There will always be Foliats at, at Nass House. And that's some joke to him. So the household has dinner. And then they're all supposed to be doing work for signs to prepare them for the next day for the fete. And Hattie announces that she is too sleepy and she is going to bed. And this really annoys Miss Brewis, who feels that Hattie always gets out of work. She never cares about anyone else. It's only what she wants to do. So the whole household is going to be working on these signs and Hattie pieces. Uh, Poirot doesn't feel that way. He doesn't live here. And he also gets out and goes to bed early. <laughs> so at breakfast the next morning, Hattie gets a letter from a cousin whose name is Etienne. And he, it says that he is coming to visit that day or within a few days, like something very soon. And this, this really upsets her. And she kind of says that he's, he's, he, she doesn't want to see him. He's a bad man or something to that effect. But Poirot catches, she's kind of looking across the table and he sees like a cunning look in her eyes or something. And then it's immediately gone. And he wonders, he wonders what that look was. A minutes later, later in, in breakfast, Hattie says that she continues on about how she doesn't want to see Etienne, he's a bad man, and she goes up to her room saying that she has a headache. Again, very much bothers Miss Brewis. <laughs> so Poirot is put to work by Mrs. Masterton, who has this force of a personality and is very good at getting people to work. And while, while she has her attention on Poirot, he keeps doing tasks until he's able to slip away. And he's just in time to hear Sir George yelling out the window at some hostile girls that are trespassing, trying to get to the ferry. Uh, and he's, he's quite mad, yelling at them that they have to go back. Uh, as he's trying to get away, Mrs. Oliver catches him and introduces him to the girl Marlene, who is going to be playing the dead body. And she's weirdly interested about like what she calls sex maniacs. And so this is a uh, fascination that they give a lot of teenage girls in these books, which I don't know, is a little weird, but also maybe truthful. Maybe that's how Agatha Christie saw youth. Anyways, she says that her granddad had seen a body in the woods and I she talks about some other bodies and 
how she'd like to meet a sex maniac, like just some weird stuff. And Poirot feels uncomfortable being around her and gets gets away from there as fast as possible. So by 3 p.m., the fete is in full swing. It's going terrifically. They've had a good showing. And Hattie makes her big entrance. She's full of jewels and wearing, I think she says what she wore to Ascot. Like she's got, you know, designer clothes, designer dress, hat, whatever. And uh, Mrs. Foliat has also clearly taken on the hostess role. She's very much the woman of Nass House at that moment and her her friends are coming by and everyone is congratulating her on how beautiful Nass House looks. So she's continuing up this role and Poirot thinks that she's almost doing it like subconsciously, like it's just comes naturally to her. So at some point throughout the fete, it's noticed that Hattie is missing. She's supposed to be, she was supposed to be judging the children's fancy dress contest uh, and wasn't it, no one could find her for that. And then the cousin, Etienne, has arrived, but, and clearly wants to see his cousin, but she's nowhere to be found. So that's a little weird, but there's this kind of idea floating around that, She's made herself scarce because of this cousin. We're not we're not too sure, but there's that going around. And then uh, Poirot is tasked to go look for her, and he goes down into the um, the paths through the woods, and he finds Mrs. Oliver at the tennis court. And together they decide. I guess they've they've given up on Hattie pretty quickly, and they go to check up on Marlene. Mrs. Oliver is particularly worried that Marlene was not going to be playing the dead body correctly because she was a teenage girl. Like, Mrs. Oliver thinks that she was going to get caught up doing something else and and forget to play dead. But Poirot isn't too worried because I think it's the first person has just found the first clue. So, and there's whatever, eight more clues. So it's going to take a while before anyone can find, can find this body, if ever. <laughs> it sounds like the clues are pretty tough. So they get to the boathouse and it is locked as it should be, but Mrs. Oliver has the spare key. The 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 initial key has been is like the seventh clue or what the last clue is hidden is just a key and then you have to find where it goes to. And so they get into the boathouse and what could they possibly find? Marlene playing dead? No, Marlene is dead, of course. So it is later that day that a detective inspector Bland is called and he's leading the investigation and he's starting to kind of get the lay of the land from Sir George about what the fet was, what was going on with the murder hunt, all that kind of thing. Sir George leaves and the doctor comes in and he gives a statement that the girl had been strangled with a clothesline, which is I think the the same thing that was supposed to have happened on of the actual murder. And he puts the time of death between 4 and 4.40 p.m. So that the party kind of is maybe started just after lunch. So quite quite into the afternoon. Tea time, I guess. 4 or 4 p.m. would be tea time. So Miss Brewis is interviewed first. And she tells them how Marlene was chosen. So there was a family in one of the, in the village where the the mother, Marlene's mother, uh, worked as like a housekeeper at Nouse house, house. And so they knew the girl already. And so that's why she had been asked. And she also explains how Mrs. Leg was supposed to do it. But I think someone at some point, Miss uh, Peggy Leg had done people's fortunes at like after dinner one night and people had really thought she was good at it and so she had been selected to be the fortune teller 
for the day. And that's what she was doing. And she says, Miss Brewis says that she had been the one who had taken tea to Marlene around 4.15 um, after, I think she says that uh, Hattie, Lady Stubbs, had asked her to take tea to Marlene. And yeah, so she places, I think she had started to go down or get the tea ready at 4.05 and so places it somewhere around 4.15. And so this is, they're kind of establishing, okay, this is probably the last time she was seen alive, Marlene. So then the mother, Mrs. Tucker of Marlene is shown in next. And of course she has absolutely no idea who killed her daughter. She thinks it must be an escaped convict, which is again, the stereotype of what gets thrown out for, for murders in these small towns quite often. And she describes how Marlene had just been a regular teen. Like there's, there was nothing else going on, which is probably very likely. So next, Mrs. Oliver is interviewed and she is a complete mess. She's so upset that this is her, her, like her murder hunt. It's supposed to be this fun game and it's someone's kind of taken over it basically is how she's feeling and, and made this murder happen. And she tells the inspector about the letter that Hattie had gotten at breakfast and how Etienne had arrived in a yacht that that uh, afternoon. He had been coming up the river. I think he had come over from France, like sailed across... Or, I guess he's from the islands. So again, he's part of this family with the plantation. And so, but I think had sent the letter, he had been to France at some point and then sailed across the channel and was going through England and has now stopped here. And Mrs. Oliver kind of describes how she thinks that Lady Stubbs slash Hattie ha is hiding from him. So that's when this kind of suggestion gets made to the police that she didn't, she'd kind of expressed that she didn't want to see her cousin and she's the type of person where she would, she would not face her problems head on, she'd run from them. From Mrs. Oliver, the inspector also hears that Poirot is around and so he asked to see him next because he remembers Poirot from a, a past case when he had just been a sergeant. And so Poirot says that he had last seen Hattie just before 4 p.m and that Etienne had arrived around 4.30 p.m. So this means Etienne was also around during the time frame of the murder, so that's significant. The police are going to interview him. And at this point, uh, the inspector, Inspector Bland, kind of realizes for the first time that everyone's been saying Hattie is missing, but now he's finally cluing into Hattie is missing. Like, we need to find this woman. And so he sends his sergeant out to go look for her. But... She can't be found anywhere in the house or on the grounds. So next, Etienne D'Souza, who is his full name, is the cousin, he is questioned. And he says that he had seen nothing while he, he was passing in his yacht or boat by the boathouse. And he also says that he had sent a letter to Hattie three weeks ago proposing to visit her. So he's not sure why the letter this morning was such a surprise, to be fair, not, he hadn't received a reply, but also he'd been traveling. Like, there would have been nowhere for her to send the letter. So the inspector asks if Hattie had any reason to fear him because she had had any reason to fear him. And he says that he, bas he had basically barely known her. He had just seen in the newspaper that she had been married and thought that he should pay her a visit. But he, he has no idea... Basically, he doesn't think that they knew each other well enough for her to have any kind of opinions about him, necessarily. So the sergeant comes back in, 
and he had gone out to kind of check if if Hattie could have left the property because they haven't been able to find her anywhere. And the gardener who had been at the front entrance said that Hattie had not left by the front gate because they had had someone there collecting, you know, ticket fees for entry to the fete. And the the ferryman down by the quay, whose name is Myrtle, he also hadn't seen anyone, uh, like, taking the ferry or leaving that way. But he had seen Etienne, so his kind of story lines up about when he had arrived. So Sir George kind of bursts into the office at this point. I think Miss Brewis had been asked back in, so they're both in there. And he's in a huge state about his wife. I think it's just, it's just hitting him that she's like really missing, missing, like hasn't been able to been, been found. And so he's freaking out about that, of course. And whereas Miss Brewis, on the other hand, thinks it's nothing, thinks that Hattie can take care of herself. And why are we all freaking out about her? She probably just snuck off and, you know, just is hiding. She still thinks he's, she's hiding from Etienne or whatever it is. But we've heard from the maid that, so Hattie had been wearing, you know, this, this beautiful dress and heels and a hat. And the maid has gone through her clothes and says nothing else is missing. And they don't think that Hattie could have gotten anywhere in the heels and clothes she's in. Like she wasn't going hopping fences and things like that. So while they have Sir George back in the room, they ask him more about Etienne. And he uh, kind of begrudgingly admits that Hattie that morning had said Etienne was a, uh, when they were alone together in the room, said that Etienne was a bad man and that he kills people. That had been her words. And so he he's kind of saying that, you know, Hattie says a lot of things and a lot of them just sound childish and he doesn't really take take anything by them. Uh, and so he had kind of felt the same about this, that that what she was saying, saying that he, when she was saying that he was evil, he had kind of taken that with a grain of salt. So Inspector Bland later points out that the suspect list must be fairly short because only people who had known the end of the murder hunt or kind of had known about the murder hunt at all would know that Marlene would be in the boathouse. And on top of that, they would have needed a key to get in. Unless Marlene had known them and had let them in herself. So then they ask about all the keys. And they know that there's one key was hidden with the clues and they had found it there. It was still hidden. Mrs. Oliver had one key. And then the third key was in the desk in the study, Sir George's study. So again, someone who had access to the house and knows about that key would have access to that key. So Sir George and Miss Brewis leave and the inspector starts to think about the yacht and he's thinking that that could be a good hiding place for something or other. So they want to keep interviewing the rest of the household. So they start start with Michael, the architect. He's shown in and he hasn't actually heard of the tragedy yet. So he's quite surprised when he hears about, about Marlene. And he says he last saw Hattie at around 3.45. And he thinks that she likes to kind of play dumb. So he's kind of maybe of a similar similar opinion to Miss Brewis, but not quite so upset about things. Like doesn't seem to dislike Hattie the same way Miss Brewis dislikes Hattie. Uh, so he thinks that, that, you know, Hattie likes to play down, like, or sorry, play up how dumb she is, but he also thinks that she's not totally all there. Like there's, she's still like a valley girl, I guess as well. <laughs> so while this is going on, Poirot finds Mrs. Foliat in the drawing room of Nass House. 
And he describes her as looking like she's aged 10 years. Like she looks totally freaked out by this and very upset. And she says to Poro that he shouldn't listen to what what Hattie had said about Etienne, that she is, again, she's pretty childish. She just says these things. But she also defends her honor in the sense of Hattie wouldn't just go off with some man or do something. Like she's kind of saying she's, she was a good girl. So the police ask, they ask Miss Foliat for an interview and she goes in and she's kind of says that they're ask they they feel that if she, if if there's anything going on, Mrs. Foliat knows about it because that's kind of her personality. And so they ask if there was any kind of bickering or resentment or anything going on between George and Hattie, and she's adamant that there was nothing. That their their marriage was very happy, there were no problems. And she also says that it wasn't her who had asked Miss Brewis to take tea down to Marlene. So this was an interesting point of uh, Miss Brewis says that it was Hattie who had asked her to take tea down. But everyone else is saying that's super uncharacteristic of Hattie because she never cared about other people. She only cared about herself. And so there's a little bit of maybe suspicion there of like, there's no way Hattie would do that. Maybe it was Miss, Mrs. Foliat, but she says, no, she, she was too busy running things like she was in the tea tent helping out she did not which wasn't thinking about Marlene necessarily so that's not true or it is now who knows who's who's lying and who's telling the truth um and she doesn't think they ask her if Mrs. Legg was in the tea tent after 4 p.m because again Mrs. Foley had been serving tea past that time and she says no there are basically no familiar faces she would have noticed if Peggy was there and she wasn't which is interesting because they follow that up by interviewing Peggy, who says that she had been in the tea tent from 4 to 4.30. So again, this the second contradiction of who's lying, who's telling the truth. Then the inspector and Poirot have another chat. And Inspector Bland thinks that Hattie is dead and that she was Marlene was killed for seeing something. So they think that it was Hattie was the target and Marlene was just a a casualty in the matter. And Poirot, I think he's he's maybe not fully agreeing with this, but he's agreeing with part of it and he's saying that Mrs. Foliat thinks that Hattie is dead too. So he's taken something from their conversation earlier where Mrs. Foliat thinks that Hattie is dead and that she knows a lot more that she is saying is kind of Poirot's opinion. So the next morning, it is just Poirot, Miss Brewis, and Sir George that come down for breakfast. And Sir George is super agitated, very upset. Um, Hattie has not been found anywhere. They're kind of, they're not even necessarily sure where to search. They really thought she would have turned up by now, especially in the clothes she was wearing. So Poirot is kind of like looking at him and thinking that he normally in this kind of a case would suspect the husband, but not this time because one, he does take Sir George's kind of like distress as real. And Sir George had been on the lawn helping with the, the FET games the entire afternoon and had not left. Like that's just a like hard fact. So Sir George leaves the breakfast room and Miss Brewis starts to kind of complain about how Hattie probably went off with some, some man. And she kind of says that Hattie has been leaning on Michael this entire time. Um, but then she kind of goes back on that and says, well, so has Peggy Leg. The, both these women are leading him on. So Michael wasn't necessarily fully interested in Hattie. He was also interested in Peggy. And then they kind of talk about, does Alec 
Peggy's husband realize what's going on. And Poirot thinks not because he's so self-absorbed in his own problems that he might not even notice what his wife's doing. And then Miss Bruce kind of says to Poirot that she had seen Hattie slipping out um, in the evening, like after the night she had said she'd gone to bed with a headache. Miss Bruce had seen her sneaking out kind of dressed in, not, not sneak out clothes, but you know, like dressed in a certain way that gave her ideas about what Hattie was going to do. So Miss Brewis leaves the breakfast room and Mrs. Masterton comes in and she is full of force just as she always is and she's basically ready to do something about Hattie. So this feeling of why aren't the police doing enough and she also thinks that Hattie is dead and is going, basically says she's going to get the, the police to bring in bloodhounds. So again, she, she's kind of going to try and swing her power through her husband to, to make things happen. So then Poirot goes down and sits in the folly to think, think things over. And while he's sitting there, he sees something kind of sparkling and picks up a gold charm in one of the cracks in the folly. And he recognizes it as one from Peggy's charm bracelet that she'd been wearing the day before as playing, playing the, um, the fortune teller. So as he's sitting there and, and wondering about this, about how did this charm fell off? Is that where, if she wasn't actually in the tea tent at 4 to 4.30, is this where she had come? And so while he's sitting there thinking, a man comes in. And clearly the man had been approaching for some kind of a rendezvous. And when he sees Poirot, he kind of, you know, is pretty startled that this is not the person he came to see. And Poirot recognize him, recognizes him as a guy who had come from the hostel and had been at the fete the day before. And he's wearing this, they call it a turtle shirt. And so that's how he recognizes him as this shirt covered in turtles, which I'd like to say, I would wear that shirt. So, but maybe in the 50s, that was kind of a big deal. <laughs> a turtle shirt. So, so he, he leave. I think basically Poirot, he tries to pretend that he was going down to the quay to catch a ferry and Poirot tells him he's trespassing and he goes back the other way. And Poirot kind of follows him out a little bit and then comes back to the folly. And who does he find but Peggy is clearly looking for something. And so we have an idea of what that thing is she's looking for, but Poirot doesn't give it up initially. And he kind of asks her if she's there for a rendezvous. And she says, no, who meets for a rendezvous in the morning? She thinks that's weird. And somehow she kind of gets to talking about how she's exasperated that her husband is hiding something from her. She's upset about whatever it is, and it's it's doing a number on their marriage. They're pretty recently married, and so this is not good that they're already not communicating, I think is her feeling. And then I think Paro gives her back her charm and kind of notes to her that, like, listen, I know what's up. I think he says... I know you, like, he says, I, you, I know you were wearing that when I came in for my fortune earlier in the day, which is not true, but he wants to get Peggy's reaction. And I think he is pretty sure that she was meeting someone in the folly at that time. And then another person comes in and it turns out to be, dun, 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 Alec Legg. And he seems to be the, the, the second person of the rendezvous with the guy in the turtle shirt from the hostel. And... I think Poirot points this out that his rendezvous person has already left and Alec says, so that's why you're down here, Mr. Poirot. Well, 
you probably have all the info you need to arrest me, and he leaves. And so Poirot's a little confused about all that, but he lets it go, and just to just to let it let himself think about it. So Inspector Bland and his superintendent are at the station, and Hattie's black hat that she had been wearing the day before has just been found in the river. So things are not looking good. And they also have a search warrant to search Etienne's yacht. He's been asked to stay until the inquest, so for a couple of days. And when they get there, he is eager for them to search. He says, go ahead, you didn't need the search warrant, I would have let you do it anyways. And what do they find? Nothing. So kind of a disappointment. Uh, it's later that day. They're kind of, they're looking for all possibilities. Inspector Bland takes a river cruise. So there's this cruise that kind of goes down the river maybe a couple of times a day. And as they're passing by Nass House at the quay where the ferry would be, that the, the ferryman stands by, there's a couple that look like they're play fighting by the water and kind of pushing each other in the water. And then the man holds down the woman's head underwater. And Inspector Bland is noting that absolutely no one on this river cruise, on this boat, notices this play fighting or that this man is drowning this woman. And of course, these are both police officers that were doing this to test a theory. And so the woman is an excellent swimmer and she gets out of the water later. That's not a problem. Um, they also at that time have someone sitting in the boathouse and they note that you could not see the quay from the boathouse or anything that was happening there. So if Marlene had seen something, they don't think it had happened It was someone being drowned unless she had come out of the boathouse, which they also think is a possibility. While that's going on, Hercule Poirot is conducting his own experiment. So he has asked for the fortune-telling tent to remain open. And so he goes in the front end and then he comes out the back where he's, he's untied the flaps. And from there, he's able to go directly into the woods. He walks a short distance into the woods and he comes up to a shed. And so he goes into the shed and it's pretty dusty in there and not much has been touched except for there's a circle on the floor where there's no dust. So he takes note of that. And then he keeps going, he keeps walking and he comes out at the path that leads directly down to the boathouse. So he's proved something to himself. So it's two weeks later and the police are still looking for the murderer. They, they don't have any, basically any more clues. Um, Etienne is about to leave the country, so they're, they've really put their sights on him but haven't been able to get any information that could lead to his arrest in any form. And it is the next day that old Myrtle, the ferryman, is found drowned. And he had been returning from the pub and it seems had stumbled on the quay and fallen into the water and it had been this accidental death, so the police think. So then even, so three weeks from then, so now it's been five weeks since the murder, Poirot is sitting at home and is just disappointed that he hasn't been able to solve this murder. Like he feels like, you know, his reputation is on the line. And so he decides to make another trip to Nass House to visit Mrs. Foliat because he really thinks that she holds the key to the murder. She, he, he thinks she must know something that she's not telling them. So she's super surprised to see him when he gets there. And she al he also describes how she looks, she looks even older than the last time he had seen her. And she looks a lot more frail as well. Very wary is how she's described. 
So Poirot pleads with her to tell, tell him what she knows. And he basically is trying to make the case that a murderer will murder again. It's, it's if they can murder once, they can murder twice, they can murder however many times. So please tell him what she knows. And she tells him that she knows nothing. There's, she has no suspicions. She doesn't know what he's talking about. And so he has to leave. Before that though, Poirot says something along the lines of that Nass house is basically hers and she kind of like goes about it as if it's hers and that really upsets her and she says I pay Sir George rent I have a right to be here it's in my contract that I can go on the grounds and so they leave on not bad terms but there is kind of this there's obviously tension because Poirot's trying to get something out of her. From there, Poirot doesn't go home he goes into the village to see the Tuckers. So the Tuckers are Marlene's family and he suggests to the family that Marlene might have actually known her murderer. And so that's because this family, again, like with village life, everyone's suspecting that uh, it's some like escaped convict, it's some crazy person on the loose or whatever. Like that's, that's the opinion at the time. And he's trying to suggest to them that uh, these these murderers can take the form of any normal person. They they don't no, you don't look like a murderer. You know, if you just look like an average person who happens to commit murders. And so he's suggesting that it could have been anyone. It could have been a nice old lady, which is perfect because it gets Mrs. Tucker to remember uh, that Peggy had given Marlene some list lipstick and a scarf and things like that. And so she had given her these gifts beforehand. So this is kind of exactly what Poirot was hoping to get out of. So it's, she's saying it's Peggy. And she also brings up that there had been a second tragedy in their family, that they had had to, you know, pay two deaths duties this month. And that's when they say that um, Myrtle, the, the the ferryman, had been Marlene's grandfather. So it's it's Mrs. Tucker's dad who, who drowned as well. So Poirot kind of like, he, he, I think some things click into place for him and he utters, there will always be foliots at Nass House, which is that he kind of says is this phrase that their father had, had told him on, on the first day he'd arrived. So Poirot leaves the house, but um, Marlene's younger sister catches up to him and she says that it was actually Marlene had bought the lipstick and things and there actually been more makeup in the stores with some money and that ha she had just lied and said it was Peggy that gave it to her, I guess, because it looks better if someone gave you the makeup than if you bought it yourself. And that the reason the mother didn't know about it is because this younger sister had taken it out of the her sister Marlene's drawer and put it into her own when Marlene had died to be able to be like, no, this is mine now. <laughs> she says that Marlene had used to snoop a lot and that people would give her money not to tell their secrets that Marlene had found out about. So from, from there, Hercule Poirot finds a telephone and he calls up Inspector Bland and asks him what kind of yacht had Etienne had. And, and uh, the inspector is confused by the question and agrees that yes, it was a big yacht. And Poirot says that Etienne was a, was a rich man and it makes all the difference and he finally has an idea of what is going on in this case. And so Inspector Bland has no idea Maybe us as the readers have no idea. Maybe you guys do have an idea of what happened. And so this is where I am going to pause the story. And if you can, I would love it if you if you have an idea of what happened, if you can write out your thoughts a little bit, tell me 
and a little detail what you think is going on, what happened and how, who is the murderer, what's gone on, how many murders have there been, uh, where's Hattie, because they still haven't found her or her body. Uh, yeah, I'd love to know what your thoughts are. So you can either email the show, which is TuesdayNightMysteryClub at gmail.com. I will leave the email address in the description of this podcast. You can also send me a DM on Instagram. The Instagram for the show is TuesdayNightMysteryClub. I guess TikTok? The, the show now has a TikTok. So if you'd like to contact me there, that's also TuesdayNightMysteryClub on TikTok. And I'd say that's about it. Uh, the no Facebook or Twitter so far, but maybe in the future. <laughs> Uh, so I'd love to hear from you, and if you'd like to hear the solution, you can wait until this weekend when I will upload your guesses as well as the actual solution to the story, Dead Man's Folly. And if you really can't wait, I guess you can look it up. <laughs> you can Google it. So at this point, I would like to, one, suggest if you would like to support the show further, you can do so at patreon.com slash Tuesday Night Mystery Club, where you can also get bonus content such as uh, getting the show a day early, show notes, um, exclusive access to question and answer periods, uh, lots of other bonus content that you can go check out in different tiers and you also the best best benefit of all the knowledge that you are supporting the Tuesday Night Mystery Club show. I'd like to take this time to thank our current patrons at the Inspector Gamash level we have Shelley Tsao. At the Miss Jane Marple level we have Bar McLean, Michael Borello, Debbie Kravis, Emily Shilton, and Alex Young Davies. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much to all of uh, my current patrons for supporting the show and keeping things going. Um, as I said before, you can contact the show on by email at TuesdayNightMysteryClub at gmail.com. You can go to the Instagram, TuesdayNightMysteryClub, and TikTok, TuesdayNightMysteryClub. And I think that is all. Stay tuned for your regularly scheduled Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Anywhere you listen to podcasts next Tuesday. Goodbye, everybody.